Let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're in a series called Soul Killers. This is part five. Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. What a hymn we just sang. Lord, to sing it in unison with, with this body, Lord. One hour on Sunday, Lord, as we gather as a larger community, Lord, during the week in small groups. We're maybe having coffee with a friend. Lord, we thank you for this life you've given us. Lord, speak purpose into our life. We know that you value us, but we know that we have a purpose. Help us to fulfill our calling. Lord, we love you with all our heart, soul, and strength. And may what we do right now honor you as you speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What comes to your mind when I say the word courage? Now, sheepishly, I have to admit, because we are a movie-driven culture, I think of all these great warriors in the movies, right? I think of Russell Crowe in Gladiator or Mel Gibson in Braveheart. You know, freedom! And it's just so iconic. You think, okay, these guys are the heroes even though they're really not real. Um, but in all honesty, when you think of courage, you probably think of those who shaped history, right? I think of somebody like Rosa Parks who one day defied a bus driver telling her to give up her seat in the colored section to a white woman who was standing That one little act of courage sparked a civil rights movement in our nation that has led us to where we are today. Martin Luther King's dream was a big part of that. When I think of courage, I think of when I was in first grade, and those of you who are young, this is hard to imagine, where they actually wheeled the black and white TV into our room. That was cutting edge. And we watched those guys walk on the moon, and it was like, wow. You know, a guy gets in a spacecraft, goes thousands of miles. That's a great act of courage. And of course, we're Christians, so we look at the Bible heroes, right? The Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11, the great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. The Bible says they subdued kingdoms, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, became valiant in battle. And who can forget the Bible's greatest upset of all time? In fact, this is the greatest upset of all time when a scrawny little red-haired kid goes out with a slingshot and five stones and beats the superpower of the day, the Philistines, and a giant of the man. And uh, all you hockey buffs out there, I don't care. Uh, That was greater than the 80s Olympic hockey game, for sure. That was the greatest upset in history. So we look at all that and we say, wow, that's courage. And then there's everyday acts of courage, right? Firemen who run in the burning buildings, police officers who patrol our streets, educators trying to make a difference in the inner city, anyone who walks in a DMV during the week is certainly an act of courage, right? The list goes on and on. The truth is, this is my single greatest learning of this series, because I'm a participant. The single greatest learning of this series that has affected me the most is that courage is not a one-time act, nor is it something the few possess. But courage is part of the character that God's trying to build in each and every one of us. It needs to become who we are in Christ. If we're going to be transformed, then we're going to have to become courageous. Not once in a while, but every day of the week. And the reason I've chosen courage out of a long list of character traits in this series is because the counterpart to courage, fear, is a soul killer for sure. In fact, it may be the greatest soul killer. All the other ones we've been talking about, pride and laziness and sloth, lying, lack of integrity, they erode somebody over time. Remember last week, little by little by little, your poverty comes on you? What's so interesting about fear is it can happen at any time. You know, I look at King David who defeats Goliath with a slingshot. He's being chased by Saul. And, and he never conquered fear and neither will you and neither will I. 
We'll grow, grow greater in our confidence with God. But you know it and I know it. Fear can come on you like a wet blanket. It can come when you least expect it. It just downloads on you. It paralyzes you. It cripples you. Uh, you think bad thoughts about God and other people. And it is a soul killer for sure. It's toxic to our faith. Uh, it sucks the life out of us. The word fear comes from an old English word to choke or to strangle. So I think you get the idea. Now, when I talk about fear, I'm not talking about irrational fears or phobias like the monster under your bed or you're afraid to take a shower because you're alone. That's your fault. You watch Psycho. Don't blame that on God. All right. Uh, My daughter has this fear of the brown recluse spider. It's irrational, right? One day she Googled it because we have spiders in our house like I'm sure you do. And she Googled this spider and... You know, within hours, you have black bumps on your arm, and in three hours, you're like a mummy. You know, it's, and so she's convinced our spiders are the brown recluse spider. So you could be in my house on a normal day, and you'll hear a shriek, and you thought somebody got murdered, and it's because she thinks a brown recluse spider is on her, okay? That's not the fear I'm talking about. I'm talking about worry, anxiety, stress. Okay, I'm talking about those things that strangle the mind's ability to think clearly and with reason. Just chokes the life of God and everything he's instilled in us. Now, fear is usually about the future and something uncertain about the future. Something unknown, something we can't control. So, this is how it plays out. Somebody has a job. It's a wonderful job, pays well, they enjoy it. But they spend all of their life worrying, what if I get laid off and lose this job? I won't be able to provide Uh, Our health is a factor in this, right? I think more than any other generation, we are bombarded with all these drug commercials and you can't even check out of a supermarket without looking at magazines about what's good for you, what's bad for you, um, what's going to happen to your heart. If my heart skips one beak, I'm running for the bare aspirin, right? I've been trained in fear by our culture. And then there's the relational world. You know, is my spouse going to leave me? Are they going to cheat on me? And uh, we tend to live out these fears before they ever arrive. And almost every study uh, that you can look at will tell you most of what we fear will never happen to us. Now, do people lose their jobs? Yes. Do people get sick? Yes. Do people have affairs? Yes. But see, I think what God's saying is, okay, there's prevention and then there's dealing with something when it happens. But the idea of creating scenarios in our minds of things that will never happen is fear strangling us, gripping us. Tim Keller, pastor's Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a wonderful pastor and author, uh, he said, we all have basic motivational drive. Every human heart has something that drives it. It gets them through life. It moves us to do what we do. And then here's what just floored me. He said, most of the time, It's fear. So you look at a guy who works six days a week, 18 hours a day, and you say, wow, he's industrious, man. He's an entrepreneur. He's not lazy like we talked about last time. He's putting his hand to the plow. If you get behind the scenes, that's probably not true. He's probably driven by insecurity and fear that he won't have enough. Remember the guy Jesus told the parable about who had a barn that was full and then his, his business was doing so great that he had more. And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear that down, barn down. I'll build bigger barns. See, that guy was insecure about his future. He didn't think what he had came from a good God. He thought it was by his own ingenuity and strength. And therefore, he would lay up more for himself. 
Instead of being generous and giving it away and believing that whatever we cast on the waters, God will give back. Uh, Job fell into this predicament. Job worried about his children. He sacrificed for them. He covered for them. And when his calamity came on him, he said, what I have feared has come upon me. Okay, so we're all gripped by this at times. Now, collectively, we've just all had an experience. We've shared it together. And that is the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. Now, Warren Buffett knows more about money than anybody in this room, maybe anybody on the planet. So when Warren Buffett talks, I listen. And uh, Warren Buffett could talk about how we had an over-leveraged economy, and he could talk about some of the greed on Wall Street. But here's what he had to say about the past recession. He said the credit crisis coupled with tumbling home and stock prices produced what he said was, quote, a paralyzing fear that engulfed the country. A paralyzing fear that engulfed the country. You know what Warren Buffett did when the Depression came? He said he became bullish on America. He went out and bought more stock and invested more money. And he's probably richer now than he ever was. But fear engulfed a country. People stopped buying things on a dime and uh, got very nervous about the way things would be in the near future. When I look at fear and anxiety, the people group that I'm worried the most about and I want to minister to are people around my age, men post 40. Uh, There's staggering research on men who are 40 and over. Uh, Newsweek poll recently revealed that 80% of all suicides in America are male. And 6 million adult men, 40 and over, will be diagnosed with depression every single year in America. Now, where women are more security-based, you know, can we pay the mortgage and raise the kids? Men long for significance. They really do. You know, am I making a difference? Can I leave a legacy? They're prone to feel a failure, fear of what other people think of them. They become vulnerable to this about the age of 40. They isolate themselves. The devil lies to them, and they just get paralyzed by fear and depression. Now, there is good news in all of this. I ask you to turn to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. You all know verse 7. I wonder how many people have read beyond that verse, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Now I'm going to read that in context in a minute. Listen. When the Bible says God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, it's not saying there's a spirit of fear, spirit of gluttony, spirit of this, spirit of, of all these weird things. Like deliverance movements will want to teach you that. Therefore, you have to get it all cast out of you. No, 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 no. Listen. God hasn't given you by nature, when the Holy Spirit came in you and you became a Christian, he hasn't made you timid. That's what it's saying. He hasn't made you cowardice as you look at the affairs of life, which are very difficult, okay? But he's given you love, the most powerful thing in the universe. He's given you the power of the Spirit. And now this should really be an eye-opener now because you've sat through five weeks of this series. He's given you a sound mind. Anybody who's been listening or taking notes knows that the mind is your soul, okay? Your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. It's not something that's going to float on the cloud someday. Okay? The mind can be renewed. Your will can be set on the things of God. And like I shared last week, your emotions need to be disciplined. The Bible says you're a soul. 
You've been access to the word of God and the spirit of God, and now you've got to take it under control. Take every thought captive. Remember that verse? That you'll prove out what is the good and accept the will of God. You'll become like a tree planted by waters, bearing fruit in every season. John Wesley said this, I have never known more than 15 minutes of anxiety or fear in my life. When I feel fearful emotions overtaking me, and that's what they do, by the way, I just close my eyes and thank God that he's still on the throne, reigning over everything, and I take comfort in his control over the affairs of my life. Now, let me, let me unpack what Wesley's saying. Because um, I don't like when Christian leaders say things like this. Do you know why? Because generally when they say it, I, I wonder if they live a real life like I do. Okay? Oh, I've never had anxiety for more than 15 minutes. I just believe God's on the throne. Yeah. Oh, okay. You must, be, you must have an S on your chest. Okay? That's how I think. So what was Wesley saying? Well, I think Wesley was saying that he was very courageous when it came to the word of God. Wesley had a practice that is not always my practice. When fear engulfs me, I'm probably like you, where I start working my way out of it, okay? What phone call can I make? What networking can I do? I start using all my resources. Wesley said, no, up front, I take it under control. I get on my knees. I remember there's a God who's running the universe, who has my great interest in mind. Two sparrows can't fall to the ground without his knowledge. Um, and he's going to be there for me. The first thing you need to know about fear is you will never conquer it. Never. You'll never conquer it. This isn't one of those deals where you check the box and say, I've overcome fear. Moses, when God said, you're going to go to Pharaoh, he said, Lord, who am I? That's fear. Okay? He had to learn who God was. Uh, I can't prove this. But I think the systematic plagues on Egypt, I certainly know that God was breaking down every god of Egypt. The sun, frogs were deified. I understand that. I also think plague by plague, Moses' faith was being built. Because one day God would ask him to part the Red Sea and strike the rock and so forth. Uh, this is a lifelong deal. But you know what Wesley had the courage to say? That it doesn't rest on me. See, Americans have a problem with this. We're networkers, we can work our way out of things, and we have enough money or power. Courage is letting go. Now, it's not that trite, let go and let God. I don't even know what that means, okay? It's more of acknowledging what the Bible says God has already told us about how he's going to act on our behalf. If fear could be conquered, there'd be no book of Psalms. David wrote most of the Psalms. David slayed Goliath, and he spent a lifetime talking about fear, but on the very next verse, he said, but you have strengthened me, but you are with me, but thou remembers me, and though I walk through, the, you get the idea? That's David's journal. He acknowledged God's activity in his life and became courageous to the point that he would stand on the word of God. Paul here in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy Chapter 1, when he says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, he said, therefore, do not be shamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. He goes on to say, don't be ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul's final letter to any church, to any, any leader like Timothy. He's a prisoner, he's going to die in Rome, and he's saying, I'm not fearful, 
I trust God. He's been with me all the time. Um, there's a phrase, I don't know who coined it, I think Craig Rochelle did, where he says, sometimes we're living like Christian atheists. Where we love God when we go to concerts and retreats and, you know, things are going well. But the minute hardship or difficult times come, we bail. And uh, I discovered in my life, what you fear reveals where you trust God the least. Okay? So if you're going through, through anxiety or fear or you're worrying about something, just do a checklist. I'm pretty sure that you don't trust God completely in that area. You know, finances, you know, we talked about it. People are losing their jobs and it's a real deal. But maybe if that's your worry or that fear, ask yourself, when's the last time you prayed about it? When's the last time you asked God for wisdom about it? Is there a possibility you think you're on your own? Here at church, uh, I have almost never worried about 90% of what we do. Every once in a while, I'll wake up with anxiety, like in my arms. And I'm like, geez, what's, uh, and, and I do a checklist. I'm not, I'm not fearful about anything. I don't think I'm stressed about anything. And what I've come to realize, it's not necessarily what I'm going through right now, but it, but it may, something may have happened months ago that now has taken root in my spirit or my body. And usually when I analyze it, it's because I haven't trusted God in those areas. The first time we went down the International Justice Mission in Washington, D.C., they're right near the Capitol, their offices, uh, we toured their facility, and uh, I was very intrigued by what happened around 1 o'clock at IJM. Their entire staff goes into a room, and they pray every single day. And the people that were leading us around said, you know, well, this is our practice because what we're doing Trying to get women out of sex trafficking around the world is so hard because we're dealing with laws in other nations that aren't like the U.S. It's so ridiculously hard that if God's not in this, this is utter foolishness. See, that's courage. That's courage. That's, that's learning to trust. Now, the first thing about courage is you have to learn to trust God. And trust is always easier when you've already acted and seen God's favor. Um, I showed you that little clip how we were cliff jumping in Montana. Uh, we used to cliff jump with uh, students in storm ministry until the rangers shut us down upstate Pennsylvania. But I remember every year we would make those jumps and some of the kids wouldn't do it. And then all through the year they would talk about how next year they were going to do it. And you know what makes you jump off a cliff? Well, first of all, you're a guy. That's number one. Uh, but number two is the idea that once you know it's clear and, you know, the water's going to hold you, that, that helps you, like, like falling into the arms of God. That, that, that's the first thing. And then once you see somebody else do it and then you do it, there's greater sense that I can do this again, okay? So it's all about trust and then it's all about acting. Here in America, we hear all the horrific counts of human suffering around the world, right? Extreme poverty, pandemics, you hear it all, I hear it. We hear crazy statistics like a billion people on this planet have no access to clean drinking water. Uh, 27,000 children die every day from preventable diseases. You know, I see the pictures on TV like you do. And whenever we see this, the emotional side of us, our soul, okay, we get enraged, right? At injustice, we get angry, we're like... We blame governments, we blame people. 
The cry of our heart is, can somebody do something about this? Now, I'm not saying we should think about this all day because I don't think our shoulders are that broad. But I'm well aware that that emotion wells up and then five minutes later, we're doing something else. We've forgotten about it. We're on to the next thing. Courage is the ability to confront the difficulties of life and take the necessary actions. Courage is to act on what's presented to us. So the emotion wells up. We just don't wipe the tear. That was horrible. But it moves us at some point to an action. Bible commentator William Barclay writes, there's nothing more dangerous than a repeated experience of emotion with no attempt to put it into action. It is a fact that every time a man feels a noble impulse without taking action, he becomes less likely to ever take action. In a sense, it is true to say that a man has no right to feel sympathy unless he at least tries to put that sympathy into action. An emotion is not something in which to luxuriate. It is something which the cost of effort and toil and of discipline and sacrifice must be turned into the stuff of life. Last year when Sarah Frazier was here, she talked about her work in the Bronx in New York. And a lot of people were moved. She got a standing ovation. But 24 people said, hey, we'll go there next summer and help her run that inner city camp. That was like a first step for them. And we went there and they served hard and got to know the people in that area. Uh, Later in the summer, we got an email that Sarah was starting an after-school program for 50 children. And she had to renovate um, like a townhouse and get all the supplies gathered. And uh, we looked at that request. She almost never asks us for anything. And Lisa Meredith and I looked at that and said, oh my gosh, this is absolutely the worst time. We're overtaxed. We're overspent by what we're doing here. And we thought we'd have to write her an email. We just can't help right now. And lo and behold, five people on that trip got wind of this, kind of networked through their resources here in the Philadelphia area, traveled to New York, got contractors here and there, and when it was all said and done, her after-school program started out with a bang because God broke the hearts of those people and they acted on their emotional impulse. Now, that act of courage will never get in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Hebrews chapter 11, I'm sure. But I'm pretty sure the next time fear rises up in those people, they'll remember all that God has done. See, you're never going to be like David, and you're never going to learn to trust God if you haven't taken a step. Peter was a man of faith because he walked on the water. He, he, He sank, but he walked for a while, and he got out of the boat. Craig Rochelle in his book, Soul Detox, says there's four colossal fears. Fear of loss, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of the unknown. Now, one of the most courageous men in all of Scripture is the Apostle Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, in the book of Acts, there's several chapters of narrative where you wonder why it's even in the Bible. Paul's appeared before Agrippa at Caesarea. Um, He's going to trial before Nero in Rome. He leaves Caesarea... Um, there's a t- tempestuous storm. They have to stop at Fair Havens at Crete. Uh, Paul tries to give these men on, on the ship some advice. They don't listen to him. They're all captains and soldiers. And uh, finally, in, in Acts chapter 27, Paul stands up and says, Men, you should have listened to me. 
and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart that there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. By the way, that's the number one command in Scripture. Fear not. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take courage, men, for I believe that God will be just as it is he has told it to me. (laughs) This is a little strange because the angel tries to comfort Paul. Paul, you're not going to die on this ship. Um, You might get beheaded or eaten by a lion in the Colosseum, but you're not going to die on this ship, okay? I don't know how comforting I would have been, but that was the deal there. See, Paul knew that chains were in his future. He knew the purpose of his life was to die in Rome. You know, he longed to preach in Rome. And you read this verse, and was Paul a man that was self-confident? No. Paul was a man who had great confidence in the God who was leading him. I'm sure he was praying through this. An angel appears to him. Paul wasn't self-confident. He trusted God's worth to live as Christ, to die as gain. See, fear is like, is like a backpack. We, we accumulate fears as we live life. Uh, the fear of loss is, is, a, is a, it's a funny fear of mine in, in some way because I understand why I have the fear of loss. Uh, my wife and I both moved as children five times. And when we got married, we moved five times in our first six years of marriage, right? So you think marriage was no big deal. But we bought our first home, lived there 10 years, and then we bought a home right around the corner and lived there another 10 years. When it came time to move out of that house, I was gripped with fear. I really was. She can move every year. It's not a big deal to her. But I was gripped with fear, and I couldn't figure it out. I knew God was in this. I, I knew God had called us. It was, it was very strange. And then one day I was reading this book. It's called The Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year landmark study where they followed children of divorce for 25 years. And I remember reading a line in this book where I just start laughing out loud. Because it said, divorced children fear change. Because there was a time in their life where everything was going well and the rug was ripped out of them. You know, a, a spouse, you know, I mean, a parent was gone, Okay. And I looked at that and I said, that's it, right? That, that's my approach to this, that, that there's a fear that one day this is going to be yanked from me. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't. My experience said it. You know, the Bible says that the Lord gave and the Lord may take away, but that's not like pulling the rug out from me. When I started to look at that fear, I started to realize something, that it's the storms of life that are going to prove out where we are in this deal, whether we're courageous or fearful. Jesus, at the end of his ministry, hours before his arrest, in John 16, 21, said something very profound. He said, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. And because her hour has come, uh, but when she gives birth to a child, she no longer remembers the anguish because the joy of a child being brought into the world. Right? So you all get the metaphor. Uh, no woman wants to go through labor. Most men are glad they don't have to do it, okay? They'd be whining like you wouldn't believe. But the idea is as painful as it was, when you see the life, you think, all right, I'll sign up for this again. 
It's worth it, okay? Now, everybody knew what Jesus was saying. But let me phrase it a different way. In the midst of the storms of life, and we're all going to go through them. Jesus said they'll beat on our house. We will either allow what we are experiencing to influence our view of God, or we will allow our view of God to influence what we're experiencing. Let me say that again. In the midst of the storms of life, we're going to do one or two things. We will either allow what we're experiencing to influence our view of God, or we will allow our view of God to influence what we're experiencing. Paul was in a storm, and it wasn't metaphorical. Paul was in a danger of losing life, of being a failure. He had the fear of the unknown, but he said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He was assured he was going to Rome. Paul's view of God influenced his experience. But I think most of the time, experiences are influencing our view of God. And we become like those Christian atheists. To borrow a phrase from Dinesh D'Souza, when the storms of life come, you will either feel God forsaken or not forsaken. Okay? You'll either feel like Romans 8, there's nothing that separates me from Christ, whether there's peril or sword or famine or nakedness, yea, I'm more than a conqueror. Or you'll think God's abandoned you. And only storms will produce that. You don't really get courageous when you're living through the niceties of life, when life is comfortable. See, every trial, there's something to remember. You know, this recession we're living through, there's probably eight or nine takeaways that will serve us well as we go on in the future and learn to trust God. Uh, Most of us know Pulitzer Prize winning author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was put into a prison for eight years because he made a few disparaging marks about Joseph Stalin, who was the president of the Soviet Union. He went into prison an atheist. He came out a Christian. You want to hear his words when he came out, his first words? He said, I bless you, prison. I bless you for being in my life. For there lying on rotating prison straw, I learned the object of life is not prosperity as I had grown up believing, but get this phrase, but the maturing of the soul. The maturing of the soul. What a profound thing to realize. If you're not a believer this morning, if you're grappling with Christianity, if you're here because somebody brought you, you're never going to find meaning and purpose in that world out there. No matter what you achieve or, or what you possess, you're never going to find significance. You're really not. Took this man eight years of prison. I just read Jason Williams' story. He's a former basketball player. Shot a man recklessly ten years ago in his mansion. He found God in prison. People say, oh yeah, it's another found God story. You know what Jason Williams said? He said, you'll find God when you sink that low and you have time to reflect. Remember what God said to Jeremiah? Jeremiah, you wouldn't hear me. This nation wouldn't hear me in their prosperity. Sometimes pain is God's megaphone. Sometimes it is when we learn the greatest lessons of life. I want to leave you with this quote from Richard Simmons. Not the goofy... uh, This guy's the chaplain of the uh, Redskins. He's a leader of men. He's, get that image out of your mind. 
He said, I wonder how many of us, over the course of our busy lives, have given any great deal of thought to the question, what is the object of life? If we believe the object of life is to have comfort, pleasure, and prosperity, uh, then we're going to look at the storms of life as nothing more than a calamity, something to be fearful, bitter, and angry about. Um, Do yourself a favor one time. Do an exercise. And on the right-hand side of a ledger, write down all the things that have happened in your life that were wonderful, that you had no hand in. And then write all the things on the left-hand side that were very painful and bad that you had no hand in. Most of the time, the right hand of the ledger will be larger. God wants to give us prosperity and comfort. Uh, Every man under his vine and his fig tree was the plan for the nation of Israel. Can't be our driving motivation, though. People that are fearful, listen to this, fearful people avoid, they avoid risk. They avoid action. Do you know why? They're fearful. Okay? The problem is when they get to their 50s and 60s and 70s, they have a lot of regrets in life, things that can't be changed. But if the object of your life is to see God's hand through things, the maturing of the soul, the transformation of character through knowing and glorifying God, then we'll learn to see hardship just as others have. Hebrews 11, the resilient ones, as a true blessing in the development of our lives and our relationship with others. Here's how I want to end this service. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. I want you all to sit back just for a moment. Out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scriptures, I've selected five that I want to read. Just five. And you can meditate on any one of these. You can write yourself a list. You can look for your own list. Uh, Psalm 112 verse 7 says, They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 23.4, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be of strong Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is wherever you go. And then Hebrews 13, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do for me? Or what can he do to me? In a marriage, God told Adam, this woman will be your helper. The God you're looking for is the God who said he'd be your helper. Imagine that. God has given in a marriage a spouse to help you through life. And then God says he wants to help. He's not there to judge. He's not there to condemn you. He's there to help you get through life. He's not choking and strangling you. That's from the pit. That's from the evil one. He is there walking beside you every day. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Life is hard. The beauty is we do have a crutch. We have a God who puts his arm around us and says, I love you. And I got a plan for your life and you're going to make it. Be of great comfort because you know what happens in the end? We get heaven. And some people think that's a cop-out. It's not a cop-out. Heaven's a reality. It's what we're looking for. It's It's what we're longing for. Even when times are good, it's not good for all of us. And some have more than others. Okay, life's not fair. 
but heaven will become the ultimate reality and the ultimate comfort. Until that time, we've got to trust in God, trust his word. Father, we thank you for this morning. I pray for every person in this room, Lord, who's gripped by fear, gripped by anxiety, gripped by what they're going to face Monday morning. Lord, we have a lot of responsibility in life. We have children. We lead households, business. Lord, there's a lot of responsibility. And Lord, you've given us ingenuity. You've given us a mind. But Lord, let it not rest on us. Let us remember your mighty hand. Let us remember your great comforting words. And Lord, most of all, let us remember we're not alone. We're in your hands. Nothing can pluck us from that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.